Dennis Kinlaw served as an evangelist, pastor, educator, and administrator from 1944 to 2017. Passionate about sharing biblical truth, Dr. Kinlaw became a significant voice for holiness in the 20th century. We hope you enjoy this message from Dr. Kinlaw. I want to go back this morning to the psalm that we were dealing with last week, psalm number 57. And if you have an Old Testament, I hope you will open it. And if you don't have one, perhaps the person next to you will. Psalm 57. Have mercy on me, O God, have mercy on me, for in you my soul takes refuge. I will take refuge in the shadow of your wings until the disaster has passed. I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. He sends from heaven and saves me, rebuking those who hotly pursue me. God sends his love and his faithfulness. I am in the midst of lions. I lie among ravenous beasts, men whose teeth are spears and arrows whose tongues are sharp swords. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be above all the earth. They spread a net for my feet. I was bowed down in distress. They dug a pit in my path, but they have fallen in it themselves. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make music. Awake, my soul. Awake, harp and lyre. I will awaken the dawn. I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations. I will sing of you among the peoples. For great is your love reaching to the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the skies. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. Friday we mentioned the fact that this psalm comes out of an experience of trouble. Psalmist was in straits. The title of the psalm indicates that tradition says that it was written by David after he had been trapped in a cave by Saul and had come very close to losing his own life. But in a remarkable way, the Lord David's God delivered him. Someone else prepared a net for him and then fell in the net himself. Someone else prepared a pit for him and then was caught in the pit of his own digging. And so the psalmist escaped. We said it was not unusual for the psalmist to be in trouble, that if you go through the psalms, you will find a great many of them are provoked by trouble in the life of the man of God. It may be that there are more days when the man of God is in trouble than there are when he is not. And that may be because there are things that God can teach us in the days that we are in trouble that he cannot teach us, in the days when only the sun shines and all is well. And there are ways that he can use us on those days when we are in trouble that perhaps are impossible even for God when everything is going right for us. There was a book that appeared uh, not too long ago entitled Don't Waste Your Sorrows. And there there is a great theme and a great biblical thesis in it And that is that pain and illness, suffering, trouble, these things are gifts from God 
And oftentimes we throw them away instead of letting them be means of bringing great grace and great help to us. We said there are at least three reasons why God permits his own to suffer. One of these is so that God can find out what is in us as to whether we are truly committed to him and as to whether we love him more than his gifts to find out whether we will be faithful when those gifts are withdrawn because it's necessary to withdraw those gifts if he ever really knows what is within our heart. But even more important than that, perhaps, it is necessary for us that we may know ourselves, that we may know what is in our own hearts. God wants us to know ourselves and to know ourselves through his grace as able to stand for him. And there is a great joy and a great freedom in having lived in fidelity to him, whereby we develop some confidence that the one who has kept us thus far certainly will be able to keep us in the days ahead. And so many of the specters that are in the future for so many people, and many of the goblins that are in the days ahead for so many people, are diminished substantially in size because we have found the greatness of our God in the past and his adequacy. We said one of the reasons he permits us trouble is because of the fact then the world can see the real excellency of the Christian faith and the real excellency of grace. When God is rewarding us with all of his great gifts, the world, sensitive to those gifts and desirous of those gifts, thinks can be mistaken as to what is at the heart of our fidelity to God. But when a man is faithful to God, when all of the gifts and the blessings have been taken away, then the world knows that there is something worthwhile in God himself. And so the worldling whose eyes are normally dimmed by sin now is able to see that there is something in Christian grace better even than the gifts which God gives. But now when those days come, what should we do? The psalm is very clear about some of the things that we should do. One of them is that we should trust in God. You will notice in verse 1, Have mercy on me, O God. Have mercy upon me. Or it could be translated, Look with favor upon me, O Lord, O God. Look with favor upon me. For in you my soul takes its refuge. I find in you a hiding place. If I want a security blanket, you're going to be it. And I need one. I'm made that way. And so you are that. I will take refuge in the shadow of your wings until the trouble has passed by. You will notice that it is a common thought in the psalm. He sends from heaven and saves me, rebuking those who hotly pursue me. God sends his love and his faithfulness. His love is sent and his faithfulness. In the mythology of the ancient Near East, oftentimes a heavenly messenger would have two accompanists who went with him. And so somebody has suggested that that's what you have here. Along with God, you get these two angels that come to accompany him and to accomplish his purposes. One is love, and one is God's own faithfulness. And so he says, when you're in trouble, trust in him. It's worthwhile. Now, in the second verse, he prays, and that's the right reaction. 
It's good when we're established enough that our first reaction is trust, and then we should follow through in prayer. I cry out to God most high. I cry out to God who fulfills his purpose for me. I love this verse because it indicates to us what our natural reaction should be or our Christian reaction, that of looking to God. When trouble comes, we instantly relate to him. I've come to love that story of Mary at the wedding in Cana of Galilee when her relatives ran out of all the refreshment and suddenly the pall of embarrassment began to creep over that supposed-to-be festive occasion. And she knew that they were in trouble, and she did the thing that came at that moment as the right thing to do. She turned to her son and said, Son, they have no wine. Now, we should be that kind of person that when trouble comes of any kind, a reaction immediately is we turn to him. Now, there is a note in this second verse that gives a clue as to why the psalmist does this. I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. Now, the NIV, as you notice, translates it this way. Who is this God? He is the one who fulfills his purpose for me. I checked in the Hebrew on that. It's a word which is not used an awful lot. It is a participle, gomer. It is the one who completes things brings them to their proper conclusion. And so really, when the translation here is who fulfills his purpose, it is saying, I cry out to God most high, to God who completes his purposes, and particularly in relation to me. Now, if that's the way David understood Yahweh, I can understand a little better why he didn't take his sword and destroy Saul. He knew that Saul was a blight on Israel. He knew that Saul was an obstacle in some ways to the purposes of God. And he knew that there was a case to be made for his men who were with him, who had endangered their own lives for him and for what he believed was right and for the future of the kingdom. And there was a sense in which, out of respect for his men who had endangered their lives, he should have killed their enemy. But he looks at Saul and says, No, I can't touch him. Because the one whom I worship can complete his job, which he started. And if I'm supposed to be on the throne, he will put me there. And if Saul is supposed to be removed, he will remove him. God, the God whom we worship, is the disposer. I love the book of the Revelation because in it you get Jesus pictured as the one who is the disposer, the determiner of all destiny. You know, it's an incredible thing that Mary's baby should sit in the throne of judgment and dispose of all that is. But that's right. It will be interesting when Mary appears before him, won't it? But he is the disposer of all. There is a freedom for the child of God that the worldling never knows. We don't have to be so uh, itchy sometimes to get things done. We can trust. 
Blessed are they that wait upon the Lord. You can afford to wait. If it's his will and you're in the right place, because he will accomplish his purposes. Now he says, the third thing is, ask God to glorify himself. You personally commit yourself to the glory of God. Say, Lord, of course I'd like to be out on a sun-bathed hill somewhere safely enjoying the fruits of nature rather than hidden in this damp, uh, wet, perhaps cold cave, hiding from an enemy that's out there. Of course I have my own desires. But the first thing that I've committed myself to is that you shall be glorified. And if you can be better glorified by this, I'm ready for that. And so he says, Be exalted, O God. Be exalted above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. And that line is picked up at the conclusion of the psalm. It is the final word which the psalmist has to say. It's the final word that he has to say to God, and it is the final word which he has to share with us. So he speaks to God in our hearing for us to know. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. I think God has a special interest in people who've reached that point. Now he says, having done that, there's some other things to do. Then's the time to sing. Choose to be joyous. You will notice how he expresses it. He says, My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make music. Awake, my soul. Awake, heart. Awake, lyre. I will awaken the day. He has come to the point where he has committed himself to praise and committed himself to joy, a praise and a joy that is not dependent upon circumstances, a praise and a joy that is based on the nature of Yahweh, the nature of God, and the nature of his relationship to him. Now, if God is a source of joy to you, there is no way that your joy can be taken from you. And if God is your source of security, there is no way that your security can be taken from you. So he says, get the instruments out. Wake them up out of their sleep, and let's rejoice together and give praise to God, not on the basis of the problems that we've got, but on the basis of the God that we have. And those are two different things. And when God's people praise him, there tends to be a divine response. You will remember that that's illustrated many times in Scripture. Perhaps the classical one is when Paul and Silas were in prison, and had been beaten mercilessly, and their blood had dried on their own wounds, the ones that were that far along. In the midnight hour, when all was dark about them, one of them turned to the other one and said, let's sing. Now, what do you have to sing about? You don't have to sing about your pain. You don't have to sing about your wounds. You don't have to sing about your hurts. You don't have to sing about the darkness. But you sing about the God who is, to whom you've committed yourself and who has committed himself to you. Now, when that happens, It seems to me it's inevitable that sooner or later God will act on our behalf. But now how do you get to the place where your normal reaction to trouble is to trust him? 
There's peace inside when all around should create the opposite. Not only do you trust him, but it's just, you just instinctively turn to pray. And your prayer is, Lord, glorify yourself in this situation. As Paul said, whether by life or by death, the main thing is that you be glorified. And then you sing and give praise. How do you get to the place where you do that? I think the psalmist has given us the key. And that's the thing I wanted to get to on Friday. It is in that seventh verse, and it is expressed twice. I think the psalm actually pivots on that, and that this is the crux of it. My heart, the NIV says, is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. The King James says, my heart is fixed, O God. The Hebrew could be translated, my heart is established, O God. The pattern for my reaction is set, and the, the direction of my life is set, and my will has made its choice. So there's some things that are no longer under discussion for me. And because my heart is fixed and steadfast, then I can sing and give praise. And is in another passage, he uses the same thought, give praise even with my glory. Now, which may, could possibly be translated, somebody has said, even with my liver. Now, those Hebrews felt a little different about some of our organs than we do. But the liver was a seat of great emotion, and you have the same basic consonants there as you have in the word glory. But anyway, out of his inner parts, he could give praise to God. Why? Because his heart is fixed. Now, what ought to be fixed in my life? One of them is my relationship to him. And that is in terms, first of all, of whether my sins are forgiven. Now, there are times when I back away from saying that. But really, when you get right down to it, I think the scripture is clear. You take the Pauline epistles again and again. Being a Christian is made synonymous with having your sins forgiven. When you celebrate the Lord's Supper, it is the central ceremony of the Christian church. And what is it? It has to do with the forgiveness of sins. So we're the people whose sins have been forgiven. We're the people for whom the tension points between us and our God, the things that break fellowship with him, those are gone. And we belong to him and he belongs to us and we are rightly related to him. Now, you know, you can have an assurance that your sins are forgiven. And if you know that, it's amazing how many other problems you won't have. But when you get to the place where you are not sure about the forgiveness of your sins, it is astounding how many other troubles come in the train of that. I'd like to ask you, in your relationship to him this morning, can you look at him and can he look at you? And the two of you declare to each other, my sins are forgiven. That's the reason for repentance and faith, the initiation. That's the reason for scripture. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, or if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. That's the reason for the ordinances of the church, or the sacraments of the church, so that we can live in that unbroken fellowship with him. Now, 
There's a second thing that ought to be established in my life. That is my total commitment to him. The longer I live, the more precious the holiness message becomes to me. And the more relevant it becomes. Somebody asked old General Booth what was the secret of his success as a Christian in his later years. He said, if there's any key, it is because all there is, William Booth, belongs to Jesus Christ. Now, I want to ask you, was he presumptuous? I think if you'd ask him, I think what he would have said, one of our modern psychologists had said, now, wait a minute, maybe you don't know yourself. I think he probably would have looked back and said, that, that may be true, but I want to tell you this. All that William Booth knows about William Booth belongs to Jesus Christ. I don't want to ask you, have you reached that point? Have you chosen to be wholly his? If you haven't, you've got a whole host of problems. There's a vast number of insecurities in you that will plague you and haunt you until that is settled. And there are a world of questions that are resolved when a person comes to the place where he says, if I know my heart, I'm his. And you say, well, I don't feel it. Well, let me ask you, do you choose it? The important thing is that that be based in your will because emotions will come and go. And you may think you're wholly his and feel you're wholly his when you really aren't. The day that I found Christ, I said, Lord, I'll never sin against you again. I had no conception of what my heart was like. But you know, you can come to the place where you say, I have chosen, I choose to be wholly his. That's what I commit myself to. And if he'll show me something that isn't his, it will be dealt with. Now, let me ask you. We just came through a period of revival. That ought to be one of the results that we know we have chosen made that choice. The commitment is there. Now, there's a third thing that I think ought to be true in our lives. Before I, before I go to the third thing, let me back up and mention something that I notice in my notes here. Very practical reason for it. There are always going to be enough enemies to obedience to him that you don't need to be a part of the opposition. And the problem with most of us is that we're part of the opposition to what we've committed ourselves to. Now, our fathers used to talk about eradication. You haven't heard me use that term, and you won't hear many people here use it, but let me say, they meant that God was able to cleanse a man's heart of the inner opposition to the will of God. 
And we may not use that term, but we need to know the reality of which they spoke in those days. I was interested, uh, you know, in 1939, I can remember very graphically, when Francisco Franco was taking Spain, when Madrid fell. He had four columns that were moving against the city of Madrid. But in one of his radio speeches, he indicated that his best security, his best hope, lay not in the four columns, but in the fifth column. And the fifth column were the sympathizers to Francisco Franco inside the city of Madrid. And when the city of Madrid fell, it fell not only because of, before, because of four military columns pressing against the city externally, but it fell because there was a great host of people in the city of Madrid that formed part of the opposition. Now, you know, uh, you're never going to get to the place where you can't be tempted. You're never going to get to the place where there is not a battle. That's what we're talking about, living in straight. But you can get to the place where in the central citadel of your soul there's a commitment to him to be holy, his. Now, if that's so, there ought to be certain flags flying in your life. It's amazing how many problems are solved if you get your flag up and let everybody know who you are. You're out on the open seas, the war is on, and you see a ship that has no flag. Do you shoot or don't you? Only safe thing to do, shoot. There's a safety, though, if that ship that's there is on your side and you've got your flag flying. Have you ever thought about how many temptations you'd never have if every person you bumped into knew that you were a Christian before the conversation started? You're home for the holidays. You're in a social situation that could create some problems Christian-wise. You know the safest thing is before it gets started, if possible, get the witness clear. You know, I'm convinced that that was one of the reasons for the Sabbath. These people kept the Sabbath, and so all their neighbors knew they made a Christian profession. There were some things they never asked them to do. And there were some things that when they asked them to do them, they knew that if they did them, they'd be compromising their own stand. There's protection. You know, I think there ought to be some symbols, some flags, not only for your friends and the world about you. One of the great tragedies is that we've lost those seals and symbols now. There ought to be some just for you. Do you tithe? Out of the money that you handle and you have a right to spend, it's yours. You determine what's done with it. Do you give 10% of it to God? There is a tremendously liberating impact on a man when he begins to tithe. 
Now, I know there are worlds of people who can say that's legalism. I suppose it's legalism when you give your wife a budget to help run run the house. And I know you ought to do more than I heard a Baptist preacher tell about the first night of his married life. Wedding ceremony. Reception. They got in their car and traveled to where they had a hotel reservation. They went into their hotel room, dressed for bed, and knelt out of the bed and said, Lord, 10% of everything that we ever receive will belong to you. We want to be a Christian couple and build a Christian home. You know, my first reaction to that was to laugh. And my second reaction was to bow my head in admiration before superior wisdom. What do you think she thought about him? And what do you think he thought about a wife who would agree in that kind of covenant? I wonder what God thought as he looked down. Except I don't think he had to look down. I expect he was close enough that he didn't need to look down. Now, you know, it's a marvelous thing when we get certain symbols and seals and flags out there, both for the world and for ourselves. We can say, yep, my heart's fixed. It'll be much more natural to sing and to give praise, even with your liver, if that's the way you're supposed to translate that 108 psalm, have a good day.